Hello, and welcome to today's podcast episode, Patient and Provider Perspectives on Opioid Pain Treatment Plans. This program is supported by an independent educational grant from the Opioid Analgesic REMS program companies and is provided by Clinical Care Options in partnership with the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, the Alliance to Advance Comprehensive Integrative Pain Management, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and ProCE. I'm Dr. Stefan Kiertes. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, trained in general internal medicine, addiction medicine, and a lot of folks I take care of with pain without necessarily having addiction. And with me today is both an advocate, an attorney, and the executive director of the National Pain Advocacy Center, Kate Nicholson. Hi, Kate. Hi, Stefan. Nice to see you. Before I go any further, I want to note that we both declined to receive payment for this conversation. We're going to be discussing various scenarios related to opioid pain treatment plan management, both from the patient and from the provider point of view, and that's really the emphasis is the points of view. Keep in mind that all pain treatment plans should be individualized, and what's said in this podcast episode is not necessarily applicable to all patients. So, Kate, uh, let's get started. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your pain history? Sure. So I am someone who um, had very uh, disabling pain for about 18 years. I still have chronic pain today, but I'm much improved. But uh, starting in the 1990s, I sort of had sudden onset pain that left me significantly limited in my ability to sit, stand, or walk for almost two decades. Took a long time to figure out exactly what was going on. I had a lot of abnormal tests abnormal nerve studies, abnormal MRIs, obviously, since I was having these mobility issues. But they were pointing in all kinds of different directions at sort of possible multiple sclerosis and possible ankylosing spondylitis. And I got all kinds of diagnoses that were likely misdiagnoses. And it was only about three years after my pain began that I was transferred to pain management. And there they discovered that I had suffered a surgical injury to the nerve plexus feeding into my spinal cord, which is what was causing the trouble. Um, the theory was that neuromas formed as the nerves were healing, and that's what accounted for the sudden onset of my pain. For many years early on, I tried pretty much every way of managing my pain without opioids or pain medication that I could find, certainly physical therapy, occupational therapy, behavioral therapy, other medications, uh, nerve blocks. And after the pain management providers sort of figured out what was going on, they even did a repeat surgery to try and repair the injury or at least remove some of the neuromas and scarring and adhesions. But that failed. And at Mm. that point, after we'd been in it for several years, my providers basically said to me, I don't have anything else to offer you. It's it's time for you to consider taking opioids to manage your pain. And at that point, they introduced the idea of putting me on long-term opioid therapy. And now this was in the 90s, but even then, they were pretty clear with me that even though they were recommending this, largely they said because they also had a duty to do no harm and they had put me through painful procedure after painful procedure and just felt like it was important to sort of switch to a focus more on on palliation. But they did tell me it was controversial. I was given, I think, pretty decent informed consent, but it turned out that the opioids really helped me. 
and I was able to continue to work and function in the difficult circumstances um, in which, because I couldn't sit, I couldn't even benefit from use of a wheelchair, often had to be carried from place to place, but I still continued working, uh, lying down with the use of medication. And as I recall from hearing from you at other times, you were leading or helping lead litigation on disability issues across the country. Not that you knew in advance you were going to have a disability, but you just had already gone to that field. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, It is sort of the ironic good fortune of my life because I was in probably the only legal job in the country where I would have been accommodated and able to work lying down given those circumstances because I was in the office that was enforcing the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I was well accommodated. I knew that you mentioned that you are on opioid pain medicine and it's not really my interest to learn in every detail what you got, but do you think that the doses you got would have been considered high according to uh, the 2016 guideline of the CDC, which assigned a 90 milligram uh, threshold as high? Yeah, I think that they would have been considered higher only because I was taking methadone. That was the primary medication that was prescribed to me for the pain, and that has a higher MME. So yeah, for the audience, I can mention that, first of all, methadone itself, there is controversy about how and in what way to consider any sort of mathematical conversion of that particular drug to, quote, morphine milligram equivalents, particularly depending on whether you've been on it long term or not. And then separate from that, there's a lot of controversy about whether there really is an equality between computable morphine milligram equivalents and methadone's kind of in this ambiguous category. But usually whenever you see a formula, methadone winds up leading to what seems like high doses in retrospect. Did you have adverse effects? Did you have trouble as a result of being on opioids? I mean, not beyond sort of what would be expected. When I first started, I had a little sedation until until I adapted to it, which I think is is typical when one is opioid naive, but that uh, shifted. And I did have some constipation, which was very manageable, but it certainly was was present. Only real adverse effect that we don't know if it was related to the medication or not is I did have some irregular period cycles, and they just didn't know if that was about the medication or all the other stressors of being in such severe pain. You know, I mean, it's hard to know, but it is possible that the medication contributed to that. You assessed that it was benefiting you because you were working. How did your doctors ask you if it was benefiting you? Did you use the famous one to 10 scale or how did you converse about that? Of course, in those days, the one to 10 scale was still very much in use. But I mean, mostly it was just conversation about how I was functioning. You know, was I able to do more, be more productive in my job, carry on my daily activities to the extent that I could? Once we got to a stable dose, even though I was on them for more than 15 years, my dose never had to be escalated in any way. I was able to remain the same dose. That is a very interesting point because oftentimes when we hear that there is tolerance to prescribed opioids, which there certainly is, it's also assumed that every person who's on them would then either think they need escalating doses forever or that there would be no choice. And while we've all met people who did seem to have tolerance that required or uh, seem to call for escalating doses. There's also a significant group who stay on constant doses for a long time. And that's very evident in the long-term follow-up studies of people who've been in trials of opioids. 
one question I want to ask is, did you ever get the sense you were being looked down on by either your friends, your family, or doctors or nurses because you were on those medicines? I really did not get the sense. I mean, occasionally, I think I had a pharmacist or two say, you know, you shouldn't be taking these long term. That's the only pushback I ever got. I sometimes felt a little weird about it. And I would ask my friends, like, is, do I seem different? Is there something, you know, wrong? Um, and But for the most part, they were pretty supportive. I mean, they were, if you're doing better, that's a good thing, uh, was really their, their response. So didn't get much pushback at all. And at my office, you know, I was working while I, had, I was managing a big caseload. Uh, I asked, you know, does, does my work seem different? Does it seem like I'm not as focused as usual? I, I would ask. And I got very positive feedback. No. You seem just the same. So, but again, I was working in a disability office. I mean, I think I had a lot of things going for me in addition to a fair amount of, even with respect to my providers, a fair amount of privilege, educational privilege was respected and believed. Yeah. You know, that's worth acknowledging. You're a Harvard trained attorney who had acquired a position of leadership. And so people gave you, I'm guessing, the benefit of the doubt. Yes. I think that that really does play a role. Um, how, yes. how and even my provider's ability to see themselves in me, similar education attainments and those kinds of things. I think it really does matter in how people are treated. Right. I think that the reason I draw that out is because I often work with clinicians who take care of patients who are, quote, disadvantaged relative to them. They have less privilege in one way or another, or their skin color is different, or they have some rocky mental health issues. And then the tendency is to look at the conversation around opioids as a referendum on the different moral and uh, social status of the two people in the room. At a certain point, you wanted to reduce the doses of your opioid therapy. Uh, is, is that something you led or is that something a doctor led? So I had a couple of different experiences with opioid tapering. One was entirely led by me. It was uh, about 2005. I'd been on opioids for eight or nine years. And Cymbalta was just approved for, for pain at, in that year. And, and they started adding that to my regimen. And I got some improvement. That actually helped uh, me. And so I decided maybe it was time to come off the opioids. It was not recommended by, by my providers, but they did support me in it and uh, gave me a responsible tapering plan. I was in a hurry and rushed it a little bit here and there, which is sort of my personality. And uh, when I did, I developed some migraines. I got some headaches and had to slow down again. But I didn't really have any difficulty other than that, which was self-induced, with the tapering experience. But what happened was as I came down and off the medication, my pain got worse and worse and worse. And even several months later, kept getting worse and worse. Um, so much so that I had to uh, take a leave of absence from work and have a full-time caregiver until I could have uh, the medication restored. And then it took a little while to get back to where I had been before. So the medication was definitely helping manage my pain and not having it affected me. But the tapering process itself was pretty benign in my case. This is a really interesting um, story. And I think you had mentioned this before, but there probably is a group of people who would listen to this and say, oh, Kate Nicholson, you think your pain was worse when you were tapering, but actually what had happened is you were dependent on opioids and your dependence was talking, not your pain per se. I don't propose that we work out the neurocircuitry here, but what do you make of that kind of statement? 
Well, I mean, that's why I waited several months to see. I mean, that's why I took a, a leave of absence and waited several months to see if it was really about dependence or about mm. the actual pain condition and did not start going back on the medication until not later it. because I sort of was goal-oriented person, sort of wanted to be off of them and probably had this idea that I wanted to be better and uh, was a little stubborn. So I don't think it it had to do with that. And, and the other reason that I believe that is I had a second tapering experience, which occurred many, many years later. I had had one of the two surgeries that had really restored my mobility. And this was the first one where they were actually able to go back in because surgical techniques improved and fix what they couldn't fix, you know, 15 years earlier. And so I was pretty remarkably after that surgery without pain. I mean, it was just astonishing the difference. Um, I was able to start rehabilitating and walking again and sitting and all these things that I couldn't do after this successful surgery. When I tapered off, I was off. And other than having a later surgery, which I can talk about at some point, and then going off the medication again, I basically haven't uh, needed any medication really since that first surgery. It was still a complicated tapering process because I had uh, moved to Colorado. I sort of left my job at DOJ and decided I would really focus on getting healthy and rehabilitation and just getting stronger in my body because I had this great opportunity. And I went into the doctor and she said, I'm going to stop prescribing opioids to all of my patients effective immediately. I'm going to just start doing procedures. And I was already, was already coming down on the medication. I said, can I just get a taper plan, you know, um, that's safe? And she said, no, I'm not going to, I'm just going to switch. And I was worried about an abrupt taper. I'd read a little bit at that point. And I was also just worried because, you know, I waited 18 years to have a chance to get better. And this seemed like it might threaten that. But luckily for me, I had a prior treatment team in Washington, D.C., and they gave me a safe taper plan and I was able to, to get off the medication and without any kind of incident. But it did allow me to see what was coming in the current environment to uh, other patients because the reason my provider had decided to not prescribe opioids was because a local physician who was well-respected um, had fallen under a DEA investigation and it really did send shockwaves through the prescribing community and people really just stopped prescribing locally. Yeah. I'm going to guess this doctor pulling out was 2014, 15, 16 or so? 2015. Yep. <laughs> By that point in time, and I remember this very well from where I work, there were lots of doctors who were very aware that the CDC was writing the guideline. They were very aware that doctors were seen as the cause of, quote, the opioid epidemic. We can have a discussion on those words, but those doctors often felt that they were at risk in some general way, regardless of whether they knew of an investigation, they could imagine an investigation, and they felt personally on the line. And I saw lots of doctors reducing, stopping, even before the CDC issued its 2016 guideline, which they just accelerated doing afterwards. And that sense of fear, I even felt some of it myself. And I don't think I reacted in that way to it, but I was aware that this was somehow a new environment. There's been a lot of uptick in stopping opioids since 2016. I think that it's probably worth asking you from your observation as partly as an advocate, but also as someone who's reading the literature, 
Do you want to talk about pros and cons of reducing? I mean, you had a good reduction. Do you want to talk about the pros and the cons here? Sure, absolutely. So obviously, sometimes tapering is a good thing. Some people need to have their doses reduced. Some people like me, when I was improved, need a way to safely come off the medication. But the the tough thing that happened, as I know you're well aware of, is that there was this sort of rush after the 2016 guideline to get everybody to a specific MME. Part of that was as a safety measure for patients because we sort of shifted in our view of prescribing was an idea, I guess, in the 90s by some providers that you could just dose to the point of palliation and that there wouldn't be any issue with that. And we know, at least on a population basis, that risks can rise with increased dose. So I think there was a a rush to get everyone down to these uh, MMEs, these lower doses, um, and part of that was for safety for patients, and part of that was for safety for providers for the same thing that we were just talking about, right? Sort of a mixed incentive. And unfortunately, we have learned since that time that there have been about a dozen studies showing that there there are real risks with tapering too, just as, as there may be risks. In prescribing at higher doses, there are risks in tapering someone who has been on opioids for a period of time down or off of them. And some of those risks include an increased risk of overdose and of suicide, um, mental destabilization, increased pain, increased use of emergency medical services, increased hospitalization, a breakdown of healthcare relationships, poor medication adherence for all kinds of other uh, conditions that may be concurrent with the condition causing yeah. pain, just, just a lot of, of problems. And for a while, we thought it was just abrupt tapers that were the problem. If you just cut someone off quickly, that that was the biggest risk. But there have been a number of studies that suggest that the risks you know, can occur just because of a dosage being destabilized and can occur regardless of the pace of the taper. And those risks can last up to two years after dose has been destabilized. So it's a complicated calculus. The one thing I would say, though, is that some people do need to be tapered. I did, right? And there are also some studies on voluntary tapering. Are those where, reassuring, do you think? Yeah, I think they are, because I think they show that if you can control for a sort of nocebo, if people have input on if they're ready to taper, if they want to taper like I did, if uh, they can help choose the pace of the taper, if they know that the taper is not unidirectional, that they can go back up if they're really having issues. The studies show that a lot of people are actually able to reduce doses. And it's not just people like me who had a surgery that fixed things. I, I was um, on a panel with a woman in Canada recently, and she had severe arthritis. She had been on opioids for 30 years. She wanted to go through a taper and actually the medications weren't really helping her. I mean, she felt better at the end of the taper. So, you know, that I think the key is that everyone is in different circumstances. No one MME is right for everyone. And I do think it's important if tapering is considered, one, to give patients a good sense of what the risks are uh, of the taper as well as yeah. risks the dosage, right? I think there should be informed consent on both sides of that, right? But I think carefully done tapering can be successful as well. Yeah. And I guess I'll now sort of put on my research doctor hat a little bit and share this idea that when we started, when I saw clinicians reduce people, they were often under strong incentives because the number of patients on opioids 
was being counted as a kind of mark against them. And even to this day, the National Committee for Quality Assurance is using the measurement of the number of patients on opioids and at high doses as a mark against health plans, which then translates down to doctors. And I remember thinking, you know, we don't have randomized controlled trials to show that reducing people at that point, even voluntarily, was protective of them at all. I still haven't seen a randomized trial that shows that a patient is made safer by reducing their opioids. And we had observational data beginning in 2018 that some people looked like they were getting less safe as their opioids were reduced. And as a researcher, I know full well that when you observe something retrospectively that happens to people in healthcare, it's hard to be sure what's cause, what's effect. Maybe the emergence of suicidal feelings was because of something else that led the doctor to react by reducing the opioids. Maybe there was a crisis in the person's life. Cause and effect is very difficult to disentangle. But everywhere in healthcare that I've been, when we don't know for sure if something is safe or unsafe, we normally participate in an informed consent conversation. It may not be a document you sign, but it'll be, hey, am I going to do this thing, but this thing might harm you, and we have to decide together if it's really worth it to do it, and then we have to have a safety plan to figure out what we're going to do if it doesn't look like it's working. And somehow in the opioid reduction line, everyone figured that it'd just be done away with. Sometimes I'd hear sort of wiggle language where I'd read documents or hear people say that it should be patient-engaged, patient-engaged. But they would avoid using the word consent, and they would avoid the idea that patients might actually have insight into whether they are going to be put at risk of harm or not. And the mere the idea is just to talk with them, you know. But patients are people. They're adults. They're free and independent adults. They are the equal of the prescribers in every respect, save that the law gives the prescriber the right to prescribe. I never felt comfortable with the push to reduce when the evidence for the thing we were doing was pretty much non-existent. And as it stands today, I actually agree with your formulation, Kate, that there appear to be people who really benefit from dose reductions, even dose reductions they didn't initially think were a good idea. And there appear to be people who are devastated and harmed by dose reductions or stoppages. And yes, the available evidence we have suggests that those types of bad things that happen, including loss of medical control of other conditions, happens at long delay after the dose reduction, which means that we don't fully understand all we need to understand. But you can't just assume it's acute withdrawal, which is what everyone wants to say. Oh, they're just in acute withdrawal. No, no. If it's happening a year or two later, it's probably a more complicated story. We have to admit our ignorance as to what it is. Anyway, that was a little bit of a rant, Kate. I hope you forgive that. Do you want to comment on that at all? No, I I agree with what you're saying. I mean, I was alarmed when people were being tapered and I hear from people on an almost daily basis um, in emails and phone calls who are being dropped, because it's not just tapering, people are being dropped in care. We have studies also showing that providers are reluctant to pick up a patient who was prescribed opioids by another provider to a pretty alarming degree, like 40 to 50 percent of primary care providers are just not willing to take on a new patient who's on opioids. So I hear from a lot of people who are being put in situations that they find terrifying and dangerous. I hear from people who say that they've lost their ability to function and or work. And these aren't great outcomes of healthcare. I don't think that's what we're trying to accomplish here. And I think it is important to, you know, I can't go back and vet every one of these people and all of their stories, but I think it is important to listen to what's happening to patients. And then now we do have, yes, there are observational studies, but we do have a number of studies. Yeah, about 12. 
risks. Yeah. So, and the CDC 2022 guideline is, has taken a very different approach to to tapering and and to MMEs too. So this has been acknowledged in the public health world as well. So I'm going to ask you about that in just a moment, but I want to highlight that when we say we've heard from people, you might think we've heard from a few people, but both Kate and I have received notes from hundreds or even thousands of patients saying, I don't know what to do. I'm in distress. My prescription is being reduced or the doctor has said they will no longer care for me and there is no one else in my state who will take care of me. How do I survive? And the fact that we've heard from hundreds or thousands is corresponds to research literature that shows that the rate of discontinuation stoppage and abrupt stoppage went up massively between 2013 and 2020. This is not some minor league episodic thing that's just happening in the world. It's repeatedly documented in large studies. It is unfortunate and to my mind shocking that uh, there's been a relatively light touch of response from politicians and from public health authorities saying, well, you know, doctors are going to do what doctors are going to do. Or in some instances, they're saying, well, we still want them to reduce more. Uh, the more they reduce, the better we look. So we don't really need to pay attention to what happens to those patients. And I've been disappointed in that. Now, it is true. The CDC's 2022 guideline mentions prescription dose as a risk to take into account more than 50 times. But at the same time, it lightens the emphasis on a specific dose in bold font which it had before. It takes down that level of emphasis on a dose target. It has a lot, of, a lot of words as well. Kate, do you want to comment on whether that guideline would help us at this point or not? Well, I, I haven't seen any slowdown in the number of people that I hear from, and I've been advocating in this space since 2017. I would say that I've heard from tens of thousands by this point. Now, that's a number of years, right? There also is a much more elaborated section on tapering in the 2022 guideline. But the problem is that it was, as you know, picked up the, the original MMEs from 2016 were pretty much picked up by lots of later players in the policy environment. Number of states made thresholds the law. Quality metrics, as you, as you mentioned, was used by payers and pharmacy benefit plans and insurers and healthcare systems. And so disentangling all of this is a long and laborious process, even though it sort of started with the CDC guideline, just having the CDC come out with a new guideline without significant implementation is likely to be insufficient. We just passed a law in Colorado uh, that protects people from forced tapering solely on the basis of dosage and protects providers. So that's starting. There are some laws that are starting to change in a corrective fashion, but you have to kind of go policy by policy and law by law. And still, a lot of providers, I speak pretty constantly at, at health conferences and public health conferences, and we all know it takes a long time for even research and studies to sort of make their way into practice. So a lot of providers don't even know about the tapering studies that we've talked yes. about. So, you know, there's a law and policy environment and this still oversight problem, but then there's also just the lag in knowledge and information that happens with any research finding its way into practice, not just research about tapering. I think it's important to say over the last six years or the years that I've known you, you've spoken repeatedly on national forums to government organizations, to legislators, internationally as well in major conferences, often helping raise the flag of this concern. We've done a little bit of advocacy together as well. 
And I think that advocacy is absolutely crucial in a domain where the medical profession and the regulators of the medical profession decided to ignore evidence, to run ahead of evidence, and to just suddenly change everyone's care, which is what we did. And the advocacy simply was absolutely essential from the very beginning, and it's still essential now. I'll mention my own research, which is that I am deeply concerned by the suicides that happen after an opioid dose reduction or stoppage. And I think that studies are important both to try to understand the story of why somebody might die. It might not just be the opioid dose reduction, but a set of circumstances that fell apart in healthcare or in the person's life and that we need to get those stories put together. And I think it's important to understand it'll probably not just be an opioid dose reduction that causes a death, but that'll be a factor that contributed. So we're doing some research for people who want to know about that. The study's called CSI Opioids. And it's available just if you Google it, you'll find it CSI colon opioids or Google my name. And uh, if you just want to read about it, that's available to you and you can learn more about it. At the same time, I do think the crucial thing at this point is to get people to take this seriously, not just thought leaders, but regular doctors, regular clinicians, regular patients and families. Uh, otherwise, we're going to continue to see patients traumatized. Uh, Kate, any final comments? Just that I, you know, I think one of the things that I've also written about is this idea of a higher duty to the patients who are already put on opioids to begin with, yes. who are yes. then being endangered. I, I feel like, you know, they didn't put themselves on these medications. They didn't put themselves on the doses that they've been on for many years. And so I think it's particularly problematic to have them discarded from the system or dismissed as unfortunate liabilities. So I actually think there is a responsibility, an ethical responsibility to carefully care for people who've been in this situation, regardless of one's views as a prescriber about the use of opioids for long-term pain, because that is a controversial issue. Even though I think even the CDC guideline says there's a role for it in pain not being managed by other means, but nevertheless, regardless of your view, I think when people have been on these medications for a long time, putting them in a situation that's traumatizing and potentially deadly for them is deeply ethically problematic. I completely agree. I think when you change people's care against their will and potentially contribute to their death, there are a lot of bad words for that and there's no good words for it. Some of those words are criminal charges, although I've never seen anyone charged. But if you do something involuntarily to someone that results in their death, that's usually a serious uh, matter ethically and legally. And I hope that uh, in listening to this conversation, uh, admittedly on a slightly serious note here, maybe it's all serious, I really hope that people just communicate this to their family and share it with their clinicians. Kate, I'm going to say thanks very much and thanks to everyone out there who's listened to this. For more information on the Opioid REMS Education Initiative from Clinical Care Options, as well as the links that we mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes. Thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you as always.